Hi, I'm Abby Ellsworth. I'm a civilian interviewing law enforcement from around the country. My goal is to tell the real stories of law enforcement, the ones that don't make the news. Joining me today is Sergeant Eric Tung of the Kent Police Department in Washington State. Eric has been on the department for 16 years and has been on the training unit, neighborhood response team, and the civil disturbance unit. He has been a canine handler and currently is a supervisor on the recruiting and hiring unit. He has his own platform called Blue Grit Wellness, which includes, among other things, his own podcast, Blue Grit Radio. He writes articles for Police One, and in 2022, he was recognized by the International Association of Chiefs of Police in their 40 Under 40. So, Eric, welcome. Thanks so much for having you, Abby. Should we tell the audience how long we've been trying to do this? Uh, you just saw the emails. It was a while, right? Since we <laughs> first started corresponding and chatting about this. I think I feel like I know you. You, you feel like a brother to me now. It's <laughs> good. Yeah, this is a long time coming. So I'm I've been super excited. I don't know why. I think there was some vacation, you know, then there were the holidays. And then I don't know what. Just um, busy. Yeah. Yeah. But I, you know, I really follow you on you, you're, you are what I, ha, I'm going to call a relentless optimist. Mm, How's that? I, I try. It's funny because my boss and the real mentor for me has called me an idealist and I almost took it offensively. I was like, there's no way I'm a realist. He's like, no, 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 you're pretty optimistic. I don't see it, but it must be in the spectrum of things. I'll take it as a good thing. Part of the reason I feel like I know you, we have communicated, but you are very active on social media and you're not just doing fun posts. I feel like what you do is meaningful. It's about the work you do personally and it's about the profession. And and when I say relentless optimist, I think you are, I know you're in hiring and recruiting, but I also think that you are doing this as much for law enforcement as you are for your own department. Yeah, I think the optimism and the framework of trying to be positive really came as a necessity. You know, when I came into recruiting, I felt like it was kind of the impossible. It felt impossible to recruit people into law enforcement after the death of George Floyd, you know, especially in the Pacific Northwest where politics feel really you know, anti-police at times. I'll just say it that way. As far as like the louder narratives, it felt like a lot, you know, there's internal struggles, there's regional struggles. And really, it just felt like the only way that we're going to climb out of this hole is just this maybe unrealistic optimism at times. And just to focus in on what we do know, which is this is a very necessary job that takes really, we use the word relentless. And I'd say a lot of my peers, my team are extremely relentless in their craft and what they do. And it's what makes this society function a lot more people than just me, right? I just put things out in this format and I've gotten good at it, but there's a lot of people behind the scenes that put in their heart and soul. So it was a lot of that and just recognizing like that's what we need. Yeah, just trying to put out content that's helpful for first responders, for the general civilians. Just there's a lot of carryover with health and that's where Blue Grit started. It, the wellness part was really just health and trying to support wellness. But now, yeah, with my recruiting role, it does become a lot more of, hey, what are the conversations we should be having on a broader scale that would help officers help them be better, help the community be better, and just that understanding and empathy, and as it's all connected in my mind. Right. If it's okay, I'd like to start with a little background on you and the Kent Police Department so people know who they're talking to or who they're yeah, listening to. Sure. Kent is what I would call a neighboring city community to Seattle. We're pretty close to each other. Mm -hmm. And 
what hurts in Kent <laughs> hurts in Seattle and vice versa. For perspective for my listeners who have heard me talk a great deal about the five ambush murders of 2009. So you started 2007. Yeah. So in October, November of 2009, we started with uh, the ambush murder of Seattle police officer Timothy Brenton, who sitting in his squad car was shot by a suspect. And Tim's officer in training, Britt Kelly, was injured. That was on October 31st. And then less than a month later, on November 29th, the four liquid officers sitting in a coffee shop on a Sunday morning who were gunned down. I like to always read their names. Officer Tina Griswold, Officer Ron Owens, Sergeant Mark Renninger, Officer Greg Richards. So what impact did that have on you two years on? Yeah, I mean, that's huge. I know for people that came on, that was pretty indoctrinating, right? It's a really quick gut check to the realities of this job and even... I'll say beyond reality, it widened the scope of what reality could be. A lot of people that were veteran officers in this region thought, yeah, that could happen, but I mean, it's not going to happen here. And you you commonly hear that, you know, cops are pretty, you know, pretty much preppers. Like we get really skilled in the art of finding contingencies and worst case scenario planning. But then when it hits home, it hits home hard. That was really rough. You know, most people that work in King County, the Kent being South King County, South of Seattle. They live outside the area, you know, where it's a bit more affordable. So down in Lakewood, where the four were killed, that's home for a lot of people right around there, right? Tacoma, Puyallup, Lakewood, that whole area. What was more impactful in a lot of ways was Greg was a Kent officer before he was a Lakewood officer. And so a lot of people knew him. I did not know that. Yeah. And then Mark was a Tukwila officer, just our, our neighbor to the Northwest before he went to Lakewood, because Lakewood incorporated as a new city. So a lot of people kind of pooled together uh, to form that newer police, that young police department. My academy instructor, my main instructor had started in Kent and then he went to Lakewood. And so there was a wow. lot of, yeah, there's a lot of really close hurt and a lot of shared stories. I got to see the impact of line of duty death and some of the things that I came to learn about and find out about through my involvement with peer support and becoming a very strong advocate for peer support and very involved with my department and the region, I can look back and see what was happening with officers, right? There was a lot of survivor's guilt. There was a lot of blame. And that's very common in first responders. There's even people that were like, man, I I should have been in the coffee shop that morning. Had it been a different day, I probably would have been there. And maybe I could have made things different. Or even the layer of, hey, I could have been there and I'm glad I wasn't, but then feeling so guilty for that feeling, which is a very normal feeling. I mean, you should be glad that you weren't ambushed and killed, but to realize that that happened to your close brothers and sisters, it's a very complicated emotional web that a lot of us are unsure how to navigate at times. Well, that's incredible, Eric. I didn't know that. And so you said Greg was former Kent? Greg was former Kent, yeah. Wow. I never got to meet him, but yeah, I'd heard that he had started his career here. And so when you asked originally, you know, like what that was like as a a new officer, right? A two year, maybe one and a half year, especially with training and actually hitting the street. It was, it was so jarring, right? I remember going to Timothy Brenton's service in Seattle and just that realness, right? That, Hey, you could be pulled over on the side of the road. You're not even on a call and anything could happen because you're in this target called a police car. Right. So that gut check is real and it's, you know, it's heavy for the family and for my family to be like, man, this is really what you want to do. Yeah, I went to Tim's service and 
I mean, it's it's going to shake you. It's what we would say as a gut check. But if it doesn't shake your resolve, then it probably strengthens it. And I think that for most people that were new in, in my phase, you know, it kind of reminds like why you do it and that it has to be worthwhile. And you have to remember your purpose and your sense of your sense of why, which I've gotten very experienced in thinking about and talking about as as a recruiter. That's what I want to ask people about. And I've gotten very comfortable sharing about it. But I also think that's a gift and that once we're in our routine, we see all the, the negativity and we feel really cynical at times. Just remembering our purpose and why we do this, that can be very inspiring to hear people's stories and why they want to come into this this line of work or why they'd consider it is almost rejuvenating. It kind of refreshes you. And then I just, I do have to also honor Deputy Mundell. While his death was not an ambush murder, it was a month after the Lakewood officers and yeah. he was a Pierce County deputy responding to a domestic disturbance. And I should add, Lakewood is part of Pierce County. So it was a very, very dark time. But this was heartbreaking. You just posted that it we're at five years for the line of duty death of Kent Officer Diego Moreno mm-hmm. in July 2018. Your post, I mean, if I think too much about it, I'll, I'll get teary. But he, uh, I really felt his death. I didn't know him, obviously. But, you know, we're enough of a community that that felt very close and yeah. hurt a lot. So tell me about what you wrote in your post. Tell me about him. Yeah, me and Diego were very good friends. We worked the street together, same crews, you know, you're going to so many calls together. And then uh, we had a really tight-knit group that we kind of thought would be normal when you're doing a job like policing, but it was kind of eye-opening at the service when a lot of people at work or people in neighboring cities were like, man, we don't have friendships like that because there's a slideshow, right? And they see photos of all the trips we took together and all the things we did together, movie nights, barbecues with the families, with just the guys, you know, going out to town, bachelor parties, you know, Diego's at my wedding. And so he was a super close friend that I, I considered very much a brother. His death was really hard. I mean, that's clearly an understatement, but it was hard on so many levels because of the type of person he was. He was larger than life. He was the real consummate optimist. I'll try to fake it till I make it, but he was truly the extrovert, the social butterfly, the, the life of the party, the life at work. He'd be screaming and kind of like battle cries as he's going out to the car. He's just so engaged. And at the same time, cared so deeply to fight crime and to protect civilians. At the same time, he was the go-to community engagement kind of guy, you know, on his own time, on company time, all the time. Like any opportunity he had to interact with kids or the community, like he was there and even drug me into it a couple of times with my canine. It was stuff that I just wasn't into. I didn't see or feel the value or I definitely just didn't recognize it. It was a value to me. I think like most things, when you're resistant towards it, you probably need it. And when he died, it just made me reflect so much about, I guess, just his, his life cut short. And how much he was able to do with it was so little time, you know, being, I believe, 35 when he when he passed. And I guess since his death, I'd, I'd reflected a bit and I've, I've used social media, even back then, as just my personal social media as a means to kind of journal and, and put together some thoughts as an outlet. So it's become relatively common now that, you know, after five years, generally like the anniversary 
of his death, I have a, a pretty poignant reflection point. But the poster referring to was me and some of our friends, Diego's friends, like our joint friends, which is kind of like a reunion. Some people have left police work by now. Some have just changed apartments, as you do. Uh, we were all in Bend, Oregon. And that was that was pretty iconic because it wasn't planned. It was just, you know, Ben's a great place to go. And most of us hadn't gone. I was actually, I was wearing this hat that I had designed based on a hat Diego used to wear. It was a Bend Oregon logo on the hat. And he wore this to support a fallen Bend officer that was killed in line of duty. And so when Diego died, I was just trying to find a way to be constructive with my energy and trying to raise money for the family and trying to raise money for a scholarship down the line. Thought, what better way, right, than to create a hat like similar. Rather than bend, we'd put Kent in the middle and with this call sign, which was 2King56, so 2K56. And just a great homage to him. And I just felt how appropriate for me and the boys to be and bend together in some recognition, like come full circle in some ways. It'd be five years, yeah, in July. Again, I didn't know you were that close. I'm really sorry that I don't, I honestly don't know how you pick up and go on. Thank you. I mean, it's everyone reacts so differently. And for me, I found a couple a couple of my hardest points in my life. But I, I would never have tagged myself as a resilient person. Definitely like growing up, I avoided difficulty and, you know, I was pretty shy and all these things. But for whatever reason, maybe in the course of my life, I've I've become resilient. It's not like I'm trying to wear it as like a trophy, but you know, I've had a couple of close calls at work and like generally pretty quickly I I just feel so grateful. I've been able to reflect on I think all the things that are so important, like family and friends and the coming days being a gift. And you know, with Diego, it was so surreal for so long and you realize like that it's not a bad dream that you're gonna wake up from, then you gotta carry on. And he was one that was a little bit like you only live once and he lived loudly and happily and positively. And even in your intro, when you, when you say what you perceive about how I approach police work, I think a lot of it really is because I want to honor his legacy. If not for me, then for all the officers that aren't able to. You mentioned the names in 2009, of the five, but you know, so many more and, and it continues. And so if I can be this influence that's helpful for people to think positively or try to stay positive as they come to the job and recognize the dangers, physical or mental. And, but if I can help us all navigate a little better, then like I'm very honored to be able to do that. This might be difficult, but can you talk about how Officer Marino lost his life? Yeah, I wasn't working that night. I was working kind of the night earlier, actually, at the show where the event center I came to find out what had happened subsequent hours was... Kent units being dispatched to reports of a shooting. I'll try to keep the details relatively vague just so I'm not misspeaking. But in a general sense, it was outside bar closing or a restaurant where a lot of people were loitering. And then there were shots fired at each other, different people in different cars. And then people took off. Diego and some other of my friends and colleagues were the officers responding. Essentially, one of the involved vehicles where someone had shot from was picked up nearby. And so officers uh, engaged in a pursuit of that vehicle. Diego went into uh, the highway to put out spike strips, right? So these you know, kind of stop sticks uh, to disable the vehicle. We don't truly know why he was in the street, but the unofficial verdict from friends and colleagues talking was it appeared that he was in the street when he shouldn't have been. This is a huge safety risk of deploying spike strips or stop sticks. Talk about, we recognize it, but unfortunately he was in a bad spot. Whether he had thrown the the end without the cord that you used to retrieve it, maybe he had thrown the 
the cord to the opposite side and he went back to retrieve it so it didn't deflate other cars to include police tires. That's what is supposed by many. But ultimately, he was killed while he was while he was there. He was hit by a vehicle. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm sorry. It's it it's a lot. It's a lot. Yeah. Well, as you said, this month marks the five-year anniversary of his death. We'll take this moment to say, Officer Diego Moreno, thank you for your service. I'm sorry for your loss, Eric. Well, it's hard to move on from there. I do want to get to your career. Let's uh, talk about a number of the positions you have had. I know that you were a canine officer for a period of time. Yeah. And what was your canine's name? He was Cato. Cato. And I know, because I've heard you on Anthony McNeil's podcast and mm-hmm. Things Police See, uh, I've heard you tell the story and you, the two of you had an incident where you almost lost him. Yeah. So he was stabbed once and then we were in a shooting. Um, oh, so which one okay. do we want to talk about? Oh, I didn't know about the shooting. I guess we'll cover both. First of all, he was a generalist, correct? Which mm-hmm. means he tracks the human scent. Yeah, yeah. So he tracks suspects, uh, violent crimes, and that also means he's trained to pick up evidence that suspects may drop, and then also search buildings or certain areas. So basically, we were called to Des Moines, a neighboring city. There was a domestic with a weapon. I believe it was adult brothers or something. But essentially, we go on a track for the suspect through the woods. We find the guy, and he's just standing there, pretty stoic. He's not obeying any commands. He's got his hands down on his sides. And... Essentially, when he's not complying, not knowing if he's armed with any weapons, we send, or I send the dog on him to help apprehend him. Essentially, what happened was I see kind of a silhouette. Of course, it's dusk, you know, because that helps the story, right? But uh, it's kind of dark and there's like a shadow. But I see the silhouette of the profile, you know, the side of Cato and the side of this guy. And I see this kind of jab motion with his hand. And then I remember in that moment just being like, he just stabbed my dog? Yeah. Just that quick motion. And then I heard you know, Cato yelp. And I was like, Oh my God, I think he did. And so I call him back and I kind of, I reel his leash back. He's trying to get back at the suspect. who's just standing there still. He hasn't come closer to us. He hasn't run away. And then I see, and I'm feeling Cato and I see that he's bleeding. And then it's kind of chaos, right? I don't think any of our memories are that great with that kind of stress and what's going on. Essentially other uses of force, able to take that guy into custody. But then it was just trying to scoop him up and just figure out, okay, where in the woods am I in this kind of unfamiliar area and trying to get him to a vet. Now, luckily, we we're at a paved trail by that point. There's a neighboring agency car kind of on containment that was able to drive down the trail to the point where I was and then get him to an emergency vet. But yeah, luckily, he clearly bounced back. That was only a couple of years into our nearly six-year career, I believe. It's crazy what dogs can do. I think most people listening to this podcast know that when you have a canine, the canine lives with you. So it's like yeah. your it's like your partner, but also your pet. And, yeah. you know, that must have been really. Are you aware of I'm sure you're aware of canine officer Jedi with Seattle PD? Yeah. Yeah. I know the handler, too. Officer Ducray. Yeah. So poor Jedi was stabbed to death. That was mm-hmm. bad. We ta- I talked about that with Britt Kelly in my interview with her because she was on the force investigation team. Yeah, it's hard. I mean, it's I'll even say it was. Going into it, I tried to create a barrier. Like I knew I would bond hard. Like I'm a total dog person. I knew it would be a heavy bond. And that's a lot of what appealed to me about that role. 
But at the same time, as soon as I got assigned, I'm like, this is not my dog. This is the department's dog. And I also, part of my, I guess, trying to protect myself emotionally was recognizing like, hey, if I, if I get in trouble, they can take the dog away. It's not my dog. And so truly there's that. And then knowing there's a danger element and I have to put everyone else in ahead of the dog. Canine's there to promote officer safety, but it's also there to protect a total stranger and sometimes a suspect, right? And so to think about it in these these layers gets really hard as you get closer. So it, it was all very calculated, but at the same time, it's you, know, you could try all these things, but it doesn't diminish like how closely you feel. And then when he was at the vet on the operating room table, just looking through the window, I just felt so, so low and so helpless. You know, we look at it as a companion and as a mm-hmm. partner. He was doing his job to help protect us. And he was willing to get back in the fight too, which is exactly what you'd want from your partners. Right. So yeah, that was, was definitely heavy. Yeah. <laughs> well, he survived and he rebounded. He rebounded. So when you mentioned also a critical incident, was that with... Yeah. Okay. So I asked you in advance if it's okay to talk about this because I don't sure. like to put people through. And I and you said yes. <laughs> yeah, I told the story so many times. Oh, you have. Okay. Yeah. What I heard you say on the off-duty podcast is that you were in a critical incident and thought you were a goner. Mm-hmm. So tell me what happened. Me and Cato got called in on a day off. Essentially, what happened was an officer was checking a, a CD motel, uh, which is was a hub for criminal activity at the time. Essentially, this this guy got stopped. It looked like he was doing like a hand-to-hand drug deal. When we got cornered, he started providing a fake name and then tried to assault the officer. He tried to swing on him, and then he took off running, grabbing a pistol from his waistband. And a bunch of onlookers saw and panicked and said, yeah, he has a gun. That's what we saw. And so we tried to lock down the area. By the time I come in, it's July. So July is a, a very a heavy month for me, I suppose, or it's yeah. not heavy as much as it takes me down memory lane. Yeah. July, I believe it was like 2016. In any case, we corn off the area and try a canine track. It's a populated area. The track takes a super long time. We try everywhere and we're kind of, we're not really picking up the scent. And finally we come down to this last kind of last yard where we hadn't checked. And so by now there's a, there's a few other officers with me and we're just checking this closed landscape company and there's a bunch of trucks there. There's the Quonset hut and these structures and the Quonset hut is kind of this big metal frame tarpaulin structure, like it's roofed. And then there's back wall and sidewalls, but an open front. And there's like tractors and all these pallets and cabinets and barrels stored under there. I just keep them dry. Cato gets super excited and really animated in this Quonset hut. And that's generally a sign that he's picking up the odor that he's looking for. He dives under this tractor. By that point, we'd been tracking for hours and whatever cynicism I had was there. And I was like, it's probably like a, a rabbit or some cat. <laughs> I'm like yelling at him to come out the dog. I'm yelling at Kato to come out and he pulls out this jacket. And it's like this camo Whoa. fatigue jacket. And instantly, like I get chills. Oh my God. You know, just right up my spine. And then the original officer who was running with me, as one of my backup was the the guy who almost got assaulted. He said, that's the guy's jacket. And instantly we go into high alert again. It's not too too much later that he's working to the other side of the hut and an officer moves up and tries to move this barrel because he sees Cato trying to get back there. I mean, he can't find a way, the dog can't find a way to navigate between all the stuff. What I remember was that the officer moved up to move the barrel and then I just see the top of someone's head just momentarily pop up and then pop back down. But I heard a pop. Oh, right. So what had happened was the suspect popped up, tried to take a pop shot at that officer, one of my sergeants, and 
instantly my sergeant went to dive out of the way. That started off this chain reaction of events. We're all shooting at where we saw the suspect. Basically what feels like 10 seconds that people on the outside perimeter just outside the yard told me was like a second and a half. Mm. But it just, I remember this pop, 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 pop. And there were, I think, 70 bullets fired, I think is what the investigations found. Because there were four of us officers and then the suspect. And then there was an explosion. In hindsight, we found out from the fire investigators, the guy was, the suspect was hiding behind this, this cabinet holding all these propane tanks. And so the rounds fired ended up piercing the propane tank and, or tanks, and then created a leak. And then somehow the leak was ignited by some of the gunfire. So the whole thing went up. And I remember this, this fireball just kind of coming towards me. Fortunately, I was wearing a ball cap and I ducked my head down. I brought my arms up and the fire just kind of passed over me. And I just felt like I was in the middle of it for, you know, like I said, for seconds, but it was probably like a microsecond. I just flashed over me. But that for sure was the moment I thought I was just gone. I was like, this is it. Wow. I just remember this really intense heat. You can't escape it. I remember kind of walking in a circle and being like, I, there's, it's almost like you're underwater for a moment. You're like, well, there's no like up, there's no way out. I guess I'm just going to be here and perish. But luckily, fortunately, whatever divine intervention, that was not the end for me or my buddies. We kind of gathered our senses, uh, took a check on anyone, everyone we thought one of the officers was shot, but it was really the the intense flame and fire that it disoriented and he was in pain and wincing. So we were kind of dragging him out, kind of taking note of everything, doing your buddy checks, you know, checking for, you check to see if there's any, any rounds that might've hit you that you don't see, or you don't feel because of the adrenaline. So we're all kind of looking over each other. And one of the guys was like, Hey, where's Cato? And then oh, no. it didn't even occur to me for a moment to check because I just, in that split second, I thought he was gone. There's no, there's no way we're all firing at where he had found the guy. If he wasn't killed by the explosion, he was killed by our own gunfire or the suspect's gunfire. So I was just like, I, I don't know. In my memory, it felt like even seconds before I started yelling for him, but it was probably immediate, right? Just yelling his name. And as I picture in my head, it's just probably just a very curdling sound. You know, luck would have it. Again, luck to find intervention. He was pretty unscathed. He just had a, a couple uh, singe marks on his fur and on his vest. Me and my wife would later joke that Cato was like a cat with nine lives because I think at the end I, I could count nine things. I was um, literally just going to say he's like a cat with nine lives. Aww. You know, I like to think things happen for a reason. Did you get the suspect? The suspect was killed. Yeah, okay. he... Uh, this is so unrealistic, but he actually <laughs> popped up out of the fire, kind of like a zombie. And this might sound insensitive, but I'll just explain it as I see it. And he's kind of limbering towards us. And then he turned and started going towards the gate. So myself and another officer on the outside actually opened fire on him again. And then he was killed. He was arrested and he was unable to be resuscitated. But yeah, he was killed out of that interaction. One of the officers on the outside perimeter said they actually saw, like, as soon as the gunfire erupted Cato got out of the tent and he was just kind of sitting on the side of the fence just leaned up against it just panting and it's Aww. like hey like I appreciate him to have the sense because it's dog ideology working dog ideology is so weird because some people would hear that and be like well he's not trained to do that they're trained to be around the fray and the gunfire and they you know you don't want that because that shows the lack of confidence or the fear but i'm like well it's also common sense like he's been around a lot and he never shied you know in gunfire and training situations but 
for whatever reason, when everything popped up and he, his instinct was to run, I'm like totally fine with that. Well, so, he's like, these yeah. guys have it from here. I don't have a gun. <laughs> right, right. So, um, yeah, in the end, it all worked out really well. Yeah, we had other close calls. Those were the most significant, but some, some definitely some good times. And I, I love being able to know and say that he got a little bit of time in retirement. I think it was about a year and a half, two years when I promoted that he was able to retire and still be young enough to enjoy the, the good life. That was always a fear as a dog handler is you know that the work is so hard on their joints. Just the volume of work, the pulling, the, the tracking, the jumping off you know, little berms and into ravines and all the crazy places we go to crazy places suspects go to try to evade us when they're highly motivated. But in the end, I was always worried that he'd be this really achy kind of bag of bones, something that no dog owner wants to see their, their dog kind of make that decline. He had a couple of years retired and also, you know, not super common, but, but he was really good in retirement. Like some dogs get really anxious and they miss going to work and he was really good with it, which I'm really happy for and in the end his spleen ruptured it was a freak oh. thing luckily and yeah this is not a good it's not like a happy ending per se but but i'll say a couple i say it for a couple things i think i'm grateful that he didn't have this long drawn out decline as i mentioned that was a concern my wife was home when it happened she was able to call me and my boss was like get out of here go home and so i was able to take him in and be there with him at the end so i'm very mm. grateful for that yeah Oh, still hurts. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, I thought I'd be all stoic. I'm in uniform when I scooped him up and took him in and the vet was familiar with me. But it, I think that's a thing when, when you're wearing the uniform, it is like a, you know, we joke about like the superheroes not wearing capes, but it does inflate confidence in good ways and bad. Generally, it, it has helped me and I know a lot of people, it's almost like putting on a mask where you need to be this this strong figure for others. And so at times you can kind of compartmentalize it. I didn't think I was going to break down in the vet's office, but I was sobbing and I'm mm. not embarrassed to say that, but yeah, it was, it was hard. It was really hard. Yeah. Well, thank, thank you, officer canine Cato yeah. for your service. Yeah. Cato, the tornado or Cato, the <laughs> potato, depending on the day. <laughs> uh, well, thank you for those stories about him. I'm glad you had that time with him. Sounds like a good team. And as you say, I'm glad he was able to have his retirement. The one thing I wanted to just ask when I mentioned in the open that you worked in civil disturbance, I'm assuming that's the riots? Yeah, riot control. Is Kent close enough to Seattle to be called for mutual aid? Yeah, we had been historically. And so where it got quite busy was that that run of years where May Day got really bad. Uh, you remember that? Very well instigators would gather and just ransack downtown. And right. So we did come out for mutual aid along with the Valley. So the Valley has a regional team. We were able to help out. What started as, wow, a real deployment. And it became like, well, this is pretty sketchy and really uncomfortable. I really felt for the 2020 riots. We came out one day slash night. And that was, that was pretty significant. I mean, I'd been on the team for a number of years. And as I mentioned with May Day, we've, we'd been to, we would say legitimate deployments where there's gas and there's explosions and you're encountering a very hostile and violent crowd. People are throwing things. People are lighting dumpsters on fire. It was not like 2020 was the first significant one, but that was very significant. I don't mean this to like try to compare it to people that are deployed, but we have people on the team that are veterans that are like, no, it was like a war zone. And your options are far more limited than a war zone, right? Right. 
just the amount of disarray in the sense of like which way is up and what are you even what are you even doing like the amount of mayhem and destruction was just so frustrating and saddening there was a lot of gas deployed that like first significant day uh, when we came out and then seattle decided that they weren't going to utilize gas so the valley chiefs understandably uh, reasonably were saying hey we can't if you're not going to make it safe for officers to deploy then we're we're out you know i think that's a reasonable decision but all of us felt so frustrated and i guess if nothing else we really felt for the seattle officers that had to be on the line for days weeks right like months Weeks, months, yeah, as it just kept going on and on to varying degrees, right? And then the chop, the chop chaz and all yeah. that nonsense. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, very frustrating from the outside. And yeah, I mean, that's just a common thing where you, you can have any regional officer or probably even outside the region just really feel for what Seattle police officers have to deal with or have had to deal with. Yeah, people don't, I don't know if May Day is around in other areas of the country, what it has been here. It was every year. It was mayhem, and and the department did a very good job of using bikes and strategy to control that. But the difference was May Day, they weren't attacking the police, really, where the riots, so they're attacking, they were doing everything they did during May Day, but also physically attacking the police. And it was, mm-hmm. in with May Day, it was, to tell me if I'm wrong, because you were there, not me, but it was more of a contained, predictable path that they were on, where this you know, I've heard a few officers describe it as it was just, it was 10, like 10,000 people and it was just everywhere. It was, yeah. Yeah, it was everywhere. And each year, I mean, some people think it's a conspiracy theory, but there are (laughs) documented anarchists that show up. And I'm not saying everyone that had a protest is an anarchist. That's absolutely not what I'm saying. But there are people that travel to instigate and they want to see destruction. They want to see mayhem. They want to see us hurting each other and not getting along, which is not what police want. We're all about free speech. I mean, that's what people in the right. service, whatever right. the service is, are trying to defend. But it is it is tough. Yeah, with May Day, it generally was a parade that would sometimes splinter off and you could kind of corral or escort people back or help that, that group dissipate, keep it under wraps, right? It, each year they would come up with some new strategies and right. So they'd be constantly having to pivot. But 2020 was such this new scale of response and attendance and all all the things state patrols always had an active role that they have to make sure that they don't have people going on to the interstates from downtown to to block traffic or as we've seen people get killed doing that and so it is a public safety thing too before we move on did you guys in kent get any civil unrest or was it mostly seattle not particularly we had a large demonstration in march it went off pretty well in that no one was injured there were a couple glass bottles chucked and i think one narrowly missed an officer i'll say it went well in that way but i will say that what was particularly hard to hear was that there were there were black officers colleagues of mine that decided to march you know they're in the agency was so supportive for anyone that wanted to march but to hear that the slander that they endured from largely largely white people is what they recalled and told me the kinds of things that they said i would just it just boggles my mind that people could have so much hate speech towards an officer, but make it about their black heritage. It is so uh, counterintuitive, this whole thing, but just have groups, people say, basically chanting racial slurs. It just boggles my mind. Like, what are we even doing here anymore? So I say successful and that no one was hurt, but as far as what the purpose was, which I think is to recognize humanity and build empathy, it's hard to see that, you know, when that's the account from people that I know that were there. 
so in the wake of all that, then, of course, we moved into defunding. And then I'm not sure that affected Kent the way it did SPD. But what did affect all Washington state was then these ridiculous police reform bills that were passed. We don't need to get into all of them. I just want to touch on one because you posted about it recently, and that's the pursuit law. Mm-hmm. So has it changed for the better or is it still restricted? Yeah, it's walked back a little bit where it's inclusive of some more crimes, but it's pretty hardline. A lot of, uh, I will say, police work operates in the gray and to reduce that dramatically hinders things. And this is not supposed to be an opinionated comment. This is as I interpret it, right? It's supposed to be objective. To remove a lot of that, it, it does have a lot of consequences. Some good, some bad. I mean, some people don't operate well in the gray. A lot of violent people are able to get away and have been able to get away and will continue to do so. Can you describe for those of us, I can't remember. Yeah, it was only for certain violent crimes and the list. And it wasn't just crimes of violence as you'd interpret them, but it was a list. I think an example that's been helpful for people at community meetings was before I went to a community outreach kind of neighborhood response unit, I was in patrol and my guys and I were responding to an ex-boyfriend threatening to come shoot up his ex's apartment. The officers respond, as they should, a couple of them, and I was on the way too. We don't know the credibility of the threats. We don't know if he's actually coming. But what actually happens is an officer in the parking lot sees this, the described suspect vehicle. It's pretty specific. Show up. As soon as they make eye contact with each other, the suspect does a UE and pulls out of the parking lot, tears off. And so the officer goes to follow. So at that point, we were investigating felony harassment, so threats to kill. Even though it's a domestic violence crime, even though it's a felony, that was not one of the allowed crimes to pursue for. So the officer had to stop, basically pull over, turn off his lights. And Um, why was it not uh, one of the... It just wasn't... It was not not designated as meeting criteria yet. Right. Yeah, by legislators. So that was really frustrating for me because that was an actual anecdotal example where it wasn't just an odd situation like this is a significant crime right you're you've shown a substantial threat to carry out the or a substantial step to carry out this threat and you've shown up right and now you take off which makes a common person more concerned that you were going to do this thing and now we have to just let you go are you identified sure do we know who you are yeah it's the ex-boyfriend but what safety does this this woman have now we're there taking the report and that's all we can do for her is this because Um, because you had to go from reasonable suspicion to... Yeah, probable cause. Yeah, so you needed probable cause for anything except for driving under the influence originally. But that, that um, was a change. Yeah, but yes, it was a change. And at the time, even that crime, we we would have had probable cause with our investigation and him showing oh, up. Oh, okay and seeing the texts and all these things, we would have had probable cause, but it wasn't one of the crimes that was allowed. Okay, okay, got it. So now you have this woman that basically has to vacate her apartment. And like most ex-boyfriends, most exes probably know where their friends and family are. So just to provide no level of assistance for her actual well-being in life, I mean, to say frustrated is, is not enough. Yeah. Well, in the article you posted was uh, Washington Troopers pursuit law kept law enforcement from stopping speeding driver who later killed two kids in crash. I mean, I think if I have this correctly, Washington State Patrol cannot stop people for speeding at this time. That's right. 
and I posted that, and there's there's responses from both sides, right? Some people are like, "Are you saying that people should pursue for everything?" I'm like, "No, I'm literally just sharing a news article." Uh, <laughs> generally, my my comments don't have, and in my view, don't have a strong. I'm not trying to right. you know, beat the drum in one direction or the other, but is to say that there's there's real consequences. Um, I don't think that cops should pursue for everything under the sun without regard for the risk. I think everything you do, whether it's a pursuit, an arrest, driving this way or that way, going to this call or not going, that everything has consequences and you have to continually weigh these risks and rewards. It's really unfortunate that we've we've come into a generation, we've, we've evolved into this stance where sometimes you see it paralyzes officers and whether it's the brand new officer or the administrator, it feels safer. It feels more comfortable to say we're not going to do it, but that there's a risk to that, right? There's consequences to that too. And so it's just trying to make sure that we keep having these mindful conversations as it surrounds this job that I've come to know pretty well to those that are willing to have the conversation. Right. Yeah. It's not to say we should chase everything, but it's also not to say, Hey, like just cause we're not chasing doesn't mean violence and the destruction isn't happening and the loss of lives. Cause that there's a study, a correlation that people like citing, but there's also sources that show that that study is flawed in its interpretation, right? If you don't pursue, then there's going to be fewer pursuit deaths. That's, I think, I don't think you need a study to show that that correlation will happen, uh, right. but we can't measure the implications thereafter. It's just impossible. If you had fewer suspects who flee the police, you would have fewer pursuits. Sure. And then you, <laughs> yeah. Let's let's try following orders. Yeah, and so it's, and I and I've seen comments right where they're like, well, everyone should just be in jail, and I'm like, I don't think that's the answer either, right? Like, yeah, yeah. we just need to think. I, I'm not a politician. I'm not a legislator. We just need to be sensible and just recognize that there's a lot more to it. And as I'm reminded frequently from both sides of the aisle. Hey, like police aren't the solution for everything. And I was like, I think everyone should agree on that. Um, <laughs> it doesn't mean disband them, but it doesn't mean expect them to be able to, to be and do everything. Right. Especially with fewer right. actual powers. Right. And fewer officers. Yeah, for sure. So this can bring us into your relentless optimism. Mm. <laughs> so, yeah. Probably doesn't um, sound that way now, but no, this stuff is frustrating. I think what you have tried to say is you can't get lost in the frustration. You, what I noted from our pre-interview and this may spur some thoughts, I wrote down impact and purpose, whether law enforcement remembers it all the time, there is a lot you can do to help people. In the current environment, it's easy to get distracted, but there is a lot you can do on an average day that other people wish they could do in that day. Yeah, it's really easy to forget what you can do, right? We, we especially with the legislation, it's commonplace for officers to talk about everything we can't do. Like, it's literally told to us, like, it is legal for you do, to do this, right? So if you chase that car I told you about, you're breaking the law. You're a criminal now for trying to arrest right. that domestic violence felon which feels so jarring, but it's where we were at and it's where we are, right? Like some version of that. So there are so many people just that wish they could do more and, you know, all the destruction and some of the lawlessness and just even the smaller petty things to recognize that you have influence and you have a voice and you have this presence. If you show up somewhere, people can feel, some people can feel safer, right? And if someone is 
causing a problem, even if it's minor, right? Like a trespasser or a disorderly subject, you showing up makes everyone feel safer. And there is something you can do, whether or not the courts do a whole lot with it, whether or not the laws that you used to be able to use to enforce, like you just being there, you can talk to them, you can try to find them resources, or if appropriate and necessary, you can take them to jail. That's someone, something that a common person can't do. And to realize that like, there's a lot of hope that can show up with you, depending on how you carry yourself and what you do. I think that's easy to forget after you've been doing this a little while. Well, and you've been very successful in recruiting for Kent. You want to talk about how you have been able to do that? Yeah. The way has to be paved at your agency or your organization. So my boss put out a lot of work in making sure that this was a priority and that we had the resources, namely being me and a recruiter, which it's hard, right? Everyone is short-staffed, and so... You lose someone out of the community engagement unit that was also working these longer term problems, then it, the work goes somewhere else. But to take that investment and, and create that buy in was a huge part. And to have the, I guess, the allowance and the trust, a little bit of the longer leash to say, hey, go out and try things and be okay with failing. It was okay for me because we talked about the notion so long how we needed someone to do recruiting. I just didn't think it was me. I was trying to pitch it for someone else. But ultimately, I, as I said, I, I kind of thought it was the impossible job. So in some ways, I didn't have a whole lot to lose. I didn't think that I was going to be able to move the needle or get us where we needed to go absent going to recruiting and hiring. So, I mean, it boils down to some themes, right? Like I, I talked about having support, support of your administration, supportive message. There's a lot that I and my team did as far as looking at our systems and trying to figure out where things were bogging down. As you imagine, hiring government officials can be very bureaucratic. And there's a lot that I've been trying to work with other agencies and at least provide some advice and feedback and, and helping them in their situation because everyone's a little different. But really where the difference was made, and I think that some people, some recruiters or some cops think that it's baloney, but it was building relationships. It was just being positive, being approachable, being responsive. And I know it's true because when you're trying to think about what team you want to join, the ones you can connect with, whether it was me or my recruiter, Brian, just having some degree of wearing our heart on our sleeve, feeling comfortable talking about the good, the bad, the ugly, as I have today, which Brian is excellent at. He's very compassionate. He's very charismatic, but he is a straight shooter too. And we're not sunshine rainbows and hey this job is everything you want it to be and more this job is can be so fantastic but it's not easy and it's hard at times in all the different ways but we actually both are peer support team members so we're we're very upfront about talking about approach to wellness and how that can help you navigate all that and i think that so many candidates at least the best ones the ones that are the ones that we gravitate towards as well that resonates with them because they know that there's meaningful work they can do. They know the team is a big part of why they would choose to do it one place or the other. It helps that we had really competitive pay and benefits, you know, that's so again, support that support from our city and our mayor, which we had. And so there's a lot of little things that definitely made it easier. But the, I think the low hanging fruit was we were willing to outwork anyone else and we're willing to be more responsive on our evenings and weekends than Anyone else, per what candidates and applicants told us. You wrote an article in April for, it was for Police One. Mm -hmm. And it's a really well thought out, I'll put a link to this article in the episode notes. But you talk about helping, well, in this case, helping rookie officers 
And you're right, what is true now was true decades ago when I started and has been true long before that. So you've got a couple of bullet points. The job is hard. The work is hard, but it is meaningful. Police work is an accelerant. You determine your legacy. Stay humble, stay hungry. I'd, I'd like to start with maybe the job is hard. It always has been. It always will be. So what's your elaboration on that? Yeah, so that article is largely a theme of mentoring, right? So I'm trying to appeal to the, the newest generation so that they can be successful. What you bring this article up in the vein of recruiting, what it generates in me is that the conversation when I came into recruiting and I kept hearing it and I keep hearing it is that the applicant pool isn't as good as it used to be. No one wants to be a cop. Why would they? I don't want my kids to be a cop. I don't want my neighbor kid to be a cop. And so while I don't, I won't dispute the feelings associated with that. Like there are people that want to learn more and there are people that are here and we need them. The community needs them. Let's bring them in. Let's give them a chance. And sometimes they're not cut from a similar cloth, but they're they are good people of good values and good potential. And that's what we need to look at. I think every generation has said it. And so I talk about that in the article where yeah. when I was a new cop, everyone, everyone was talking about that with like, you know, me being the borderline millennial, the Gen Y saying like, oh, what kids these days, right? But I guarantee you the boomers said about the Xers and so on and so on, right? Uh, every generation's except for our World War II uh, generation, like the great, the greatest generation. That is a thing. So we can either adopt and maintain those narratives or we can get moving and, and move upward and onward. So, but it's all related, right? I did a, an article about recruiting as well, which is on police one, just boiling down these, these simple themes. Cause that is what I want, right? I want, we want good cops everywhere and the, the good recruiters recognize that. And sometimes it's not a great fit at this department or that department. And we have a lot of different things to offer, right? Working uh, at Kent's not the same as Seattle's not the same as a small town nearby like Black Diamond, right? But there are fantastic opportunities at all of them, depending on what you want, depending on like what you're looking for. Well, and, you know, I'm reading through the rest of this. Police work is an accelerant. It is likely to underline the best and worst traits you have. In this job, you become a subject matter expert on life and death and trauma of all types. Recognizing that you alone hold the power to control your mindset is critical, which I think uh, is kind of where blue grit wellness comes from. For sure. So I, you're exposed to so many things and we can metabolize them any variety of ways, right? So I can see these terrible things happening to people, whether it's a car wreck or it's the hardest thing generally for everyone is seeing anything bad happen to a kid, whether you have kids or not. I think that's the universal, most hurtful, damaging trauma to experience. We see terrible people doing terrible things, right? It can be a lot and it weighs you down. It can really weigh you down if you don't have the right support systems, if you don't have the right practices and regimens. So it's just a recognition that in order to be the best cop and the best community member, the best parent or what all the other hats that you wear, you have to take care of yourself. And so that's in so many ways, but physically and mentally, those are primary. And then all the veins of health we know, right? Financially, spiritually, socially, whatever that means for you, like you need to hit it from all angles. And if one falters a little bit, then hopefully the other ones can help you bring them back up. But yeah, Blue Grit Wellness was born out of, of a few different things. Wellness, peer support, physical education. You know, I learned so much about physiology and exercise physiology as a hobby and then becoming a, a certified trainer through my department, strength and conditioning, because I just love learning about it. 
but also nutrition as you know, using myself as a guinea pig and friends and being able to provide basic coaching tips, some super simple things that just a place to put that out and just recognize that can help you maintain your stress just a bit more. If you can eat a little better and work out a little bit, right? Whenever you fit it in, if you scroll back way far enough, there's me in uniform, like pushing a car. Cause I'm like, okay, you can, you can work out on duty. I mean, there's some departments that ban it, which I think is so antiquated and so backwards. Like, what are you even doing? Like if you want to do push-ups and jumping jacks technically that'd be out of policy like let's be real like what really? is the job <laughs> yeah like you're not allowed to work out on duty so i mean we need to get with the times and help our officers do the job they need to do which is to be very physically fit very physically able and adaptable but also the mental components right peer support mental health awareness just talking to someone anyone so that could be a peer that could be a clinician but then it just did gravitate towards what I spent my 40 to 60 hours a week for a time, which was hiring. And I think they're all related, right? We need so many more cops. We need healthier cops that can keep doing the job. We need longevity. We need retention. And so sharing the articles I see and find as they pertain to that, as they pertain to training, it's all for the greater good, creating better, healthier cops that they can do. They can take care of themselves and each other in the community. So that's kind of where Blue Grid has gone. And just trying to be a mentor, you know, that some people that follow me are nearby and some are far away. And so just to have that reach has been very rewarding just to try to be helpful. And Blue Grit Radio falls under that umbrella. And I know some of the things you do are really very detailed, specific, how to prep for your interview. How, yeah. You know, there's a lot of advice, but you also interview other officers. I see you just posted an interview you did with the female Officer from Florida, yeah, I think. Yeah, retired Sergeant Donna Sergeant. Brown. Yeah, she's fantastic. So you people can find you and your inspiration on Blue Grit Radio as well, which is a podcast. Yeah. Yep. I, I think before I let you go, we should touch on, you, you talk about a lot, I hear a lot of this now, as do you, as you have said, going back to your why. What made you choose law enforcement? I know from prior podcasts, you... Yeah were in college and it, there were things that weren't clicking for you. I mean, ultimately I've, <laughs> I've kind of done the psychoanalysis. I was wanting to serve. I just didn't know what capacity I wanted to do something important. I wanted to be out there in the community, like boots on the ground figuratively, but then it became literally like I want to make a difference. Like so many young people do. And I feel like I have, I feel grateful to, to see in all these different walks, whether it's the majority of my career, like, 14 plus years on the street on patrol in a very busy city, very high crime area. And then even the last year and a half or whatever it's been, largely desk or community events, you know, to feel like I'm still affecting public safety and in helping the greater good of policing has been very rewarding. I think why I continue to do it is I just feel like I'm, I'm pretty good at it. So whatever hat I'm wearing, I, I feel like I'm a good team member. I feel I'm a good leader. I feel like I'm a good subordinate. I feel like I can be a, a meaningful part of all this. Some people ask if I'm going to go 30 years and, you know, full career. And I, <laughs> I'd like to think yes, but I also am practical enough to say, I don't know. And I, I think that we should all recognize that. Like uh, we could look at it as a goal and then also just know that because of the nature of the job, we can't know, we can't know if it's always going to be right for ourselves or our families. And so that's part of the conversation of the quote unquote real talk I try to have too is let's just make sure it's still serving us and, you know, our humanity. And if we get to this dark place where it's not, we need to have that gut check and that accountability piece from our loved ones to say, hey, maybe, maybe it was three years, maybe it was 12 years, but, you know, you, you 
had a good run and that's something you should be proud of and not be ashamed or scared to, to potentially transition and walk away. Yeah. Well, don't leave yet. And not leaving yet. <laughs> I know that you had said that your parents, or at least your mom, wasn't real excited about it. I know you've talked publicly about not being that close with your dad, but yeah. they uh, they had some concerns. Yeah, my mom had con- yeah for sure concerns. I mean, I think every mom does. Right. I think every dad does. Yeah, my mom. It's just pretty traditional, and so it just. And this is not a knock on her. This is the culture. Like it doesn't make sense to to take a job that doesn't require a degree when you have a degree like that. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, and yeah. I think that there's a lot of cultures that be like, yeah, it doesn't make any sense. You're right. When you say culture, do you mean Chinese, Chinese? American? Yeah. And I think most, you know, East Asian American, like it doesn't, doesn't uh, make sense. <laughs> I will say if I didn't go to college, you know, I would have had to do something, something meaningful. And maybe it would have been the military to get me to be a good candidate at 21 years old. Certainly, I would not be the type of officer as effective of a leader or communicator, verbally written, whatnot. There's no way I'd be writing for Police One if I didn't go to college. A lot of my foundational writing was probably AP English, so shout out to Ms. Dean. Uh, <laughs> but yeah. Uh, do you want to? Do you know why you and your dad weren't close, and do you remain not close? I know why. Yeah, I mean, we are. He's actually passed uh, um. now. But we ended on really good terms, and so I actually wrote about it on Father's Day. If you're if you're if you want to nerd out and scroll back a little bit, I missed um, it on my uh, Instagram. But yeah, so I mean, growing up at a young age, my dad was a dad, right? And we played and, and all that. But as I got older, I recognized he he just he didn't get it. You know, what it felt like was he didn't care. But in hindsight, as an adult. I don't think he ever saw the way. I mean, not to dive too deep, but historical for my family and so many families. But when the communists took over China, his dad fled and he just left my dad in the dust. So he just like, I work for the government. Peace out. You'll be fine. And my my dad was like, you know, 13 or 14 and he nearly died. Like he's wandering the countryside. He almost starved to death. He had to find some distant relatives out in the country. He's surviving on like twigs and roots. That whole deal it was real for him. So for a survivor of that and to not blame his dad for anything, I mean, informed a lot of how he looked at fatherhood, right? He, he still, you know, when the family all reconnected and when my, his father was aging, my dad was trying to be one of the family members to like take care of him and take him in and all this stuff. Whereas I was like, why, you know, he, he ditched you. Like he didn't care about you. He's like, he did what he had to do and I'm going to do what I have to do. Right. So I don't think he knew better. I mean, it's been really great to talk to my mom. There was so much contention and I grew up in just a argument. Like it was always fighting in the household to the point where when I was a teenager, we actually would flip schedules. My dad already worked graveyard um, hours in like a hospital lab. And so when he was downstairs, he'd woke up, we'd all go upstairs and hang out in our bedrooms. And then when he went to work, we'd all come downstairs and it was almost like clockwork and we wouldn't say anything. We wouldn't acknowledge each other. So super unhealthy. And then once, you know, I was in college, I just decided I didn't want to talk to him. I had learned enough about how he'd hurt my mom relationally. And it, it, was, it was just one thing that I just had so much anger and resentment, especially as a teenager and a young adult, where I just, I wanted nothing to do with him. I even considered changing my name which would be a big slight to his family to basically end the tongue bloodline as I saw it. But then in college, like I just recognized like, hey, I, this is me. That's my name now. And I, whether I care to in, interact with him or not, 
what it actually took. In, in some ways, I'm kind of bummed it took this, but it is what it is, and I'm grateful for it. But he got really sick, and so he was dying. And he reached out, and at that point, I just thought about it, and I didn't feel angry anymore. I didn't feel like the angry, confused young man. I think so much of you asked why I became a cop. I, I do think that there's a part of it where I was trying to prove I could do it. I could be a man, even though I didn't have anyone directly show me how. So why not go for like the most archetypical badass like right. warrior thing, right? Like I think I was still trying to prove it to myself in some regards when I pursued things like canine, even though I thought I'd be a detective when I started and I thought I'd be really good at it. My career just never really took that path. I just didn't feel angry and I, I wanted to not feel angry. And I felt that if, if nothing else, if I, if it wasn't going to bother me too much, you know, I could get over myself, I could offer a man who'd cared in whatever way he cared. Maybe it's a, a version I don't understand, but if I could offer him a little piece, even a dying man, a stranger, if I could do that, then I should. And I'm glad I did. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. Yeah. Were you only child? No, uh, I have an older sister. Okay. Yeah. Similar relationship? No, I mean, not really. So I'll say my sister's always been much more, she's always been less, like, she's taken it less personally. She'd always kept in contact with him. I don't know if it was obligation or just not having that, the emotional baggage. Yeah. I think that she's, she's just a lot more grounded in some ways to what, you know, she feels important and she's able to drop the ego and, and stuff like that. So... Well, I'm glad you were able to come to that point and have that time with him. Now as a father yourself, I'm sure that has particular meaning. So I know you're a dad, you have a young daughter. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I heard you say, I believe it was with Anthony McNeil, is once you have children, you, or at least I believe you said having children made you wonder, should I have this job? Is it too dangerous. I have a two-year-old at home. And then you said, but there's a two-year-old. What? There's Maybe there's a two-year-old in that house I'm about to enter that needs me. Yeah. Yeah. It was a lot more of people around me asking like, hey, you've had some crazy stuff happen to you. You want to keep doing this. You're, you're your dad now. And I'm like, I mean, there's so many cops that are parents, but the same time there's always that need and there's no judgment for those that step away again i think for any reason if you're just your heart's not in it then it is what it is i do think our primary responsibility has to be for our kids but there is a part of me that has felt like i was leaning more or wanted to lean more into this job because of its importance yes you don't need to have kids to recognize that children are the future and legacy and they're the ultimate thing that you need to protect but when it's your kid then it's your kid's world that they're inheriting and to want to influence that the best way you can with what you got. I just don't see a better way for me right now than this. But yeah, you bring up that two-year-old and I don't remember if I, maybe, I don't know if you've heard one of the interviews I did, but it might've been actually my own where I talked to my buddy Trevor about our hostage rescue, but that was with a two-year-old inside. No. Um, wow. Oh, wow. So that was a literal, that wasn't figurative. Yeah, it was like that connects with me literally because my daughter was two. And um, yeah, as we went up there to the house, uh, you know, I had the shield and the guy said he was armed. He'd already fired at Auburn officers. And I was convinced that when the negotiator said that he said he's going to put the two year old boy outside, I was convinced it was an ambush because he'd already shot at officers. Right. So as we show up to help out and kind of provide relief as the, the go team. 
I was convinced he was going to shoot at us and me holding the shield, I was convinced he was going to hit me. But I think that's a deal. And I've heard uh, another officer explain it really well. He's like, hey, we make a deal where when I'm on duty, I'm going to protect your family with everything I got. The deal is that when my family's at home and I'm at work somewhere else, then I trust and I believe that the officers there are going to do their damnedest to protect mine. And so, I mean, that kid, that kid's got no one else but us. How, how did that play out? He did not shoot us, uh, contrary to my <laughs> my my optimism. No, um, he did not shoot at us. He put the boy out in the snow. My buddy snatched him up. Wow! Took off running, and we were able to back up back to the armored car. And then there was a standoff where you know, for police, if it's one armed person in a house and surrounded, we're not pushing. We're times on everyone's side. Like we can wait him out. We can right. he can take all the time, but. Right. He ended up finally surrendering. He tried to light the house on fire, which is not a crazy, uncommon thing to try. <laughs> but it all worked out. Wow. Um, Eric, but geez. yeah, that kid deserved a chance, just like my daughter and every other kid. So looking back on where did we say you are? 16 years? Yeah. yeah and the next years. 14 to come. <laughs> Has it been what you thought it would be? It's definitely been more. Some of what I thought it would be and a lot of surprises. You know, kind of like I mentioned, I didn't think I'd be a canine. I had no inclination to do that until I started actually working patrol. I really didn't know a lot of the hats I would take on. I didn't think I'd get into the neighborhood response team, but seeing the value and feeling like I could be good at that community engagement piece inspired by Diego, that definitely took a different direction in my career than I had planned or I would have visualized. Definitely never thought of myself as a recruiter. I'd be curious to start asking some outsiders, like, why do you think my career took this zigzag? The rewards seem obvious, I think, in terms of, you know, we talked a lot about big incidents in this interview, mm-hmm. but there's the day-to-day, too. And you posted a f- picture of a McDonald's Happy Meal. Mm. And you said, you know, if anyone knows me, they know I don't eat at McDonald's. Mm-hmm. But you had, I believe you had gone to the precinct. Yeah. And there you tell the story. Yeah, I walk into the you know, I'm in this other building in the recruiting office and so I go to the station usually a couple times a day to get something or meet with someone or talk to someone, but now I'm walking down the hallway and basically I have to dodge out of the way for, you know, this Tonka truck going down the hallway and you know, sure enough there's a there's a little kiddo and that one of our officers is like crawling on her hands and knees playing with them and immediately your heart sinks cuz you know this kid was taken out of a bad situation. And there's no family there to transfer, right? And you have to call CPS or Child Protective Services to pick up the kid. But, you know, I was just standing there just watching them play. And I just felt so sad for a moment and just asked if the kid had eaten. And they're like, oh, yeah, we're just actually just talking about, like, getting him something. You know, one other officer is, like, violently typing the report for whatever happened. And then this other officer is playing. I was like, oh, I'll go get it. You know, officers are typically, no, no, Sarge, you got other things to do. I was like, I have other things to do that I don't want to do right now. I want to do this. Just to be able to sit back in and have some hands-on engagement with that. Blue Bridge was the the organization that we started working with. I believe it's a donation-based foundation where they hand out these charge cards so you can get stuff like this. I mean, a lot of officers countless times would spend their own money just to buy that. But it's so cool to have those funds already available. Like that's the purpose. Or to get someone in a really bad situation, a hotel room for the night. You know, what kid doesn't like a Happy Meal? So yeah, just to be able to get that. That's the day-to-day. You know, again, we do the big stories and the big incidents and the riots and the... But, you know, police work is that, too. 
Yeah, and I like that you brought that up because this isn't cheesy, it's true because it's a common theme where most of the time it's these little things that stick out. They can have the cool story, like the war stories, but when I talk about, hey, you can do a lot more than your average person has the ability to just because of what your job is, that's what I mean. And I think that anyone that's been doing the job a little while will recognize it's the little things. It wasn't the crazy pursuit in the knockdown, drag out fight. It's the times that you're able to bring a little smile to a kid or know that you put in a lot of work into this case for this vulnerable person or to really put someone you know away. Maybe you didn't even chase them down. Maybe you never even met them, right? But just to build this paper trail to stop the victimization of someone or someone's. Like it is those, those smaller interactions I think that people feel really strongly about. Yeah. Well, maybe we can close. I want to read something from your... Blue Grit Wellness website. (laughs) My career in law enforcement has put me on a path that brought me to my darkest, saddest, and most frightening moments. It has conversely offered me a lens that has highlighted my highest points of elation and pride. It says it all. And I think that what I have been able to have, and I'm very grateful for, is just the support system. I work with some remarkable people. I've met some remarkable people that are coming on the team or joining the police department that I'm really excited to watch them grow as people and officers. But all my friends from before police work, right, we say that you need to keep your life outside of the job, to keep yourself grounded in my family, my wife, my daughter, my mom, all of it, right? It's what makes you, you, your hobbies. You need it all. I feel like I'm in this onward, upward trajectory. I never thought I'd be podcasting. I get Never thought I'd be on anyone else's or even attempting my own or writing. Like, so it's all, I'm just trying to take it all in. Eric, this has been a really wonderful conversation. And I hope that you feel it's been worth waiting six months for. Yeah, no, certainly. It's, it's been a pleasure. I really appreciate it. Well, I appreciate you. I appreciate your, I really do look forward to your posts. They're they're very inspiring. And I'm, I'm grateful for your being a police officer, and I'm grateful for for what you are doing for law enforcement. Thank you so much. You too. Thank you. I want to thank Eric for his time today. As we discussed, he's a lot of great content through his Blue Grit Wellness website and social media, including Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, and TikTok. I will put links to all of it in the episode notes. Thank you, as always, for listening. Your support is what keeps me going. My goal, as I say at the top of every show, is to tell the real stories of law enforcement, the good stories that happen every day that you will never hear in the media. Help me spread the word by telling your friends about this show. Follow and subscribe wherever you listen. And if you're so inclined, leave me a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you.